Today we come to the book of Haggai. Haggai was a post-exilic prophet. That means he prophesied after the exile. You know, they had been in Babylon for many years, 70 years, and then they were freed from the exile to return to Jerusalem. Haggai's prophecy overlaps with Zechariah. The next book we will be studying, Zechariah. Both of them are post-exile or post-exilic prophets. Now, before the exile, the prophet's basic ministry was to warn people, telling them, if you, if you don't listen to God, this is what you will get. After the exile, they had basically learned a lot of lessons. They basically had learned a very big lesson. They never worship idols again up to today. 2,000 over years, Jews will never go near an idol. Second, in this case, they were now still very obedient rather than resistant to the prophets. Before that, when the prophets warned them, they didn't believe it cannot be. God will never let his temple be destroyed. God will never let his city be destroyed. What are you guys telling us about? And when it happened, oh, the prophets were right. So Haggai, when he preaches to them, has a different kind of audience. They are more teachable, more receptive. Now the book is extremely short because Haggai's prophetic ministry is extremely short, three to just over three months, compared with Isaiah or Jeremiah, 40 to 50 years. So in this book is only two chapters. Now, interestingly, he dates each prophecy of his exactly the second year of the reign of Darius, such and such a day God spoke to me and then he spoke to the people, all right? So it's a dated kind of thing. So you can follow it quite closely. You can see the sequence of events, very rare among the prophets, all right? Zechariah was pretty much like, it's pretty much like that too. He dates his prophecies. Now, we do not know much about Haggai. Who really is this person? We don't know his genealogy. His father's name is not given. Is, is he a priest? Is not a priest? We don't know. We just know God raised him up for a time, for a season to do a job. Now let's get the background of this book before we go into the book. The background is the Babylonian Empire collapsed as God had predicted. First God predicted the collapse of the Assyrian Empire. Unthinkable. Alright? It's like the US will disappear from the face of the earth, become zero. No US left. Oh, really? Nineveh would this be destroyed. No New York City left. Just just coyotes and wolves and foxes be walking there. Uh, hard to imagine. It happened already. Then God prophesied Babylon would be destroyed. The great city of Babylon is destroyed. Taken over by Cyrus. At this time, Cyrus, the Persian king, not Babylonian, had come and taken over the Babylonian Empire, conquered it. And Cyrus was a totally different kind of king from the Babylonian kings. The Babylonians were scorched earth policy, destroy everything, cruel. Cyrus, on the other hand, was benevolent, 
kind guy. He said to all the exiles, there were tons of exiles because the Babylonians had destroyed lands and then taken the elite back to Babylon, just the princes of Judah and the leaders of other and brought. And there were many exiles living in Babylon. He told them, you can all go home if you want to. But on one condition, you must build a temple where you go to, pray to your God for me. So Cyrus, of course, was God-fearing. He just didn't know which God was the right God. So when that news came to the Jews, 50,000 of them decided to leave Babylon and return to Jerusalem, to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple, right? Now, 50,000 is a very small number compared to the number of Jews who were now in Babylon. They had prospered. They had multiplied. 70 years is two generations, right? And many of them became very prosperous businessmen. Babylon was like the trading center. It's like having your business in Wall Street, New York, right? And so they prospered. And the Jews are ex excellent at trading. That's their skill. And so many of them didn't want to go back. Only 50,000 of them decided to go back to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. That's very interesting. The first chief minister of Singapore, our first leader in Singapore after the British, was a Jew. He came, his family came from Baghdad. Baghdad is right near Babylon. They are called Baghdadi Jews. Our chief minister was named David Marshall. David, King David. He looked like a Jew and he became our first leader. Can you imagine they were Baghdadi Jews, how successful they were. That was two over a thousand years after the ex after they were brought into Baghdad. They lived there, prosperous community. Now it's pretty much all of them have left Baghdad, right? Uh, left that part of the world, Mesopotamia, okay? Now, so when they left, these 50,000 obviously were making a huge sacrifice. I mean, you're leaving a prosperous, you're leaving New York City to go back to a place that has been desolate for 70 years. The trees had been wiped out by the Babylonians' scorched earth policy. The whole city was without walls. The temple was burned to the ground. There's nothing to go back to. All right? Now imagine you're prosperous. You live in a nice house in the fanciest city in the world. You are successful, but would you leave? But 50,000 did. And these, a large number, were priests. Not maybe 10% or so. And they had dreams. The prophecies, the word of God, especially Book of Chronicles, had said that the kingdom would come back again to Israel and a king would reign again. So they went back with this hope, high hopes, that they were going back to build their own kingdom and have their own king. All right, there are two characters in this book that stand out, the main guys. One is Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the name itself means seed of Babylon. All right, this guy 
was born in Babylon. He'd never seen the promised land. He is the last, he was the last survivor of the line of David. He was the grandson of King Jehoiakim. There's no other. He's the last guy. And he's so precious that God preserved him and brought him back to lead the delegation of 50,000 people going back to rebuild the city and the temple, right? So he is the last survivor. God had promised the line of David will be the line to which all of us would be blessed, right? The root of Jesse, the seed of David, all right? Then the second character is a man called Joshua. Now Joshua, as we know, is a different way of pronouncing the word Jesus. Joshua means God saves, or God is our savior. And he came back as the high priest. So these are the two people. Uh, you just, I want you to know one is the line of David, right? The other is a man, a high priest, whose name is the same as Jesus, God saves. So they all go back from Mesopotamia, it's long that journey to go back to do what? Start by building an altar. And then hopefully build a temple around the altar to worship God. Do you realize this is exactly what Abraham did about 2,000 years before this? God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. It's quite close to Babylon. And Abraham left. The first thing he did when he went into the promised land was to build an altar to worship God. Okay, so the Jews have got one big cycle, got nowhere after 2,000 years. They're back to square one again. All right, that's our life. A life of going around in circles and never getting better. Anyway, so we have them now going back. So we got them kind of a background, okay? When they went back, they started, of course, with high hopes, big dreams, high motivation, and they started to build. Laid the found the altar, laid the foundation for the temple building. But because they were so poor, there was nothing. They didn't have houses to live in. There was no crops to. So they had to survive, in a sense, and they began to neglect the building of the temple, which is understandable to our mind. I mean, hey, we got to survive, right? So they neglected, after about two years of some building, some stones were there, they had chipped stones and put some, like a basic low wall for the temple, but they began to lose morale and started leaving and began to focus on building their own houses their own business, their own farms, and the house of God was left unbuilt. Just low, few stone walls, low walls, unbuilt, uncompleted low walls for 14 years as they built their beautiful houses. And they're very industrious and they did a good job, right? So at this point, 14 years of neglect, Haggai is raised up 
and let's read the story. Okay, this is only two chapters. We can go through it literally the whole book. This is fun, right? <clears throat> Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, Darius succeeded Cyrus. Okay? In the sixth month, on the first day of the month, you see he gives exact date, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Okay, so the date is given that he was given a prophecy. To whom? To these two people. Jerubabel now was the governor. He was appointed to be the governor when he left the court of Darius. Darius said, you are the governor. Right? So he, in fact, became, shall we say, the king. Of course, you can't be king. Darius is the king. But effectively, he was like the king of the Jews. Okay? Little hint of the preservation of that line. Okay? Let's look at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of God. Aha! Uh -huh. Why did they stop? They had figured out that. I don't think it's the right time to build. It's not that we shouldn't build. But it's not the right time. The time has not come. You see, our logical thinking is, ah, we started to build before we had built our own fortunes. If we had built enough money first, don't bother with the house, we built enough money first, get our resources, then we build a house, it makes sense. We have the means, right, to build a house. That's how all of us Christians also think. Most people say, let me get my life settled and one day I will serve God. That, that's how 99% of Christians think, rather than let's serve God, okay? And that seems logical in what we would call human economics. You must have something before you can give. Right? Makes sense. But let's see what God says to them, right? In chapter 1 and verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your panel houses while this house lies in ruins? Oh, the logic was we need to have money so we can then serve God. But the problem with that logic is, when we have money, we then begin to serve ourselves first and put God as a poor second. Most Christians do that. We build our everything we want, and then we do give something to God. Not that we don't, but we give basically our spares. Now, I want to know the word paneled houses. To us, it means nothing. Now, to the Jews in Jerusalem, that was the ultimate luxury. Now, rocks were plenty, plenty of rocks. You can build houses of rocks, solid rock, no problem. But trees were rare, especially after the scorched earth policy. All the good trees were gone, and wood, timber was very, very rare. And good timber to panel your house had to be imported from, usually from Lebanon, the cedars of Lebanon. 
and to get that wood was a long way. Basically, getting imported luxury to panel your house. It's like you having French chandeliers and Italian furniture for your house, right? Basically, that's what it was. So, Haggai said, oh, it's not time yet, but your houses are paneled. 14 years, you've all got nice, prosperous, gorgeous houses. Okay, so we see how our thinking is. If I have more, I can give God. But the trouble is, it diverted to me first. Right? That's not all. We go on to see. Now, therefore, verse 5, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Oh, right? <clears throat> What's the economy of God? God says when you put your things first, you ignore God. You think the economy, you think success, you think things don't come from God, but they come from your work. Then that's your economics. But the problem is when you think that way, you have to work extremely hard and get very little. You, you, you work extremely hard, but it doesn't seem your work gets you what you want. It doesn't really prosper. So our human economics is, right, work hard. God's economics is different. Put God first, and then He blesses your work. See, our human economics puts God out of the picture. Work in the picture. Cause, effect. Hard work equals success. God's economics is put God first, then work. Nothing wrong with work. But God blesses your work. And then you have plenty. In more than enough to serve God and serve yourself. Okay? So he's saying, have you noticed you've been working extremely hard these 14 years, guys? Somehow, your hard work doesn't seem to get you the results you want. You have a panel house, but somehow the crops didn't quite go the way you want. Your business didn't quite succeed the way you thought. All the prosperity you got didn't quite give you the satisfaction you thought you deserved. Is that true? Haggai says, right? Let's look at verse 7. Mm. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much. And behold, it came to little, and when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with your own house. Alright? So basically God is saying, I teach you a new kind of economics. You take care of my things. I will bless your things. You bless my things. I will bless your things, right? We call this 
God economics. In Matthew, we all know this verse, but we don't really practice it. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added. Everything you need for life. I'm not saying everything you want. It's a whole, whole different ball game. Everything you want, like panel houses, may not even be good for you. Right? But everything you need. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and God's economics will bless you with everything you need. Right? Not just your wallet is full, not your house is paneled, but your family is happy, your soul is satisfied, right? Every part of you is shalom, shalom, shalom. Everything is mm, good. All right? Now, very few Christians can say, my life is full. Every aspect of my life is full. My belly is full. My heart is full. My home relationships are beautiful. My relationships with others are beautiful. All right? My relationship with God is beautiful. All right? Very few can say that. It's always lacking somewhere because they do human economics. Okay? So we see here, God's basically telling them, you don't understand. Consider, he said several times. Look at verse 7. Consider your ways. God is telling you and me. Christian, today, right, 2,000 years after Haggai, consider your ways. Are you totally satisfied with your life? I am. Paul Chu is. I am. All right? I wasn't before when I learned human economics. All right? Verse 10. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth on man and beast and all their labors. Everything you labor for seems to have a drought around it. Wow. So consider your economics, right? Verse 7, 12. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, um, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. In other words, within three weeks, everybody was stirred up. They considered their ways and said, yeah, we have worked extremely hard. Somehow things didn't quite work out the way we want. The business we thought was going to prosper, poke, they went down. All right? Our kids we thought were, you know, going to be good kids, poke, they became rebellious. Our marriage we thought was good, oh, we started quarreling and fighting about nothing. You know, everything just, it was drought everywhere. Famine of everything, all right? Including, of course, goods. Because in the Old Testament, they, they use goods as their way of land of milk and honey basically speaks of satisfaction and prosperity all right so here we see they obeyed god and began to get going let's look at chapter two 
In the seventh month, now previously it was the sixth month, right? On the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all of you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Okay? So we see here, um, according to the covenant that I, verse 5, that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. What happened now? They started to build, and as they built, there were people who had seen the former glory of Solomon's temple, the one that was destroyed. Now, these are very old men, of course, very revered old men. See, they were 70 years gone already. So they were probably like 10 years old when they were dragged off to Babylon, and they still remembered the glory of the temple. Now they're like 80, 90 years old, 90 over years old, and they look at this temple and say, this is terrible. It's so pathetic. This is all in Ezra. You can read this in Ezra. It's pathetic. And they began to weep. And that discouraged, demoralized the people. And so Haggai had to be sent in and say, don't let people demoralize you, right? Be strong. God is in your midst, okay? Just hang in there. Do what you need to do. So often when we do something, the results don't look as good as we anticipated, as others anticipated, and you get discouraged along the way. So God sent Haggai to say, fear not, be strong, go on. Okay, so that was a time of great discouragement. Okay. Now then in chapter 2 and verse 6 onwards, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I'll shake the heavens and the earth and the, and the dry land. I'll shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I'll fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I'll give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. What had happened? Right? As they were building and being discouraged, they also were running out of resources. Of course, building a temple with, you know, which you want to be beautiful. You were just returned 14 years and God had not given you what you wanted. The land hadn't really produced what you wanted. All your resources went to your panel houses, right? You didn't have that much, okay? And so it was like they were running out of resources and morale. And then God says, don't worry, the gold and the silver is mine. You just build. I will provide. Now, if we read Ezra chapter 5, I think verse 1 and 2, we realize that Darius actually had cut the subsidy. 
Cyrus had given them something to build. Darius had cut it, but now God moved him again to give for the rebuilding of the temple. So you see here, it says here, all right, everything is mine. Verse 7, I will shake the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. I'll fill this house with glory. I think it was God providing them. Commentators are not so clear what this is, but they were encouraged, right? Morale-wise, don't be discouraged. Just do what you need to do. Number two, God will provide, okay? Then we see in a very unusual part of the uh, book of Haggai in verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, that's about two months later, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the Lord. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now, it's kind of like strange. As you're building, he says, go and ask the priest something. You ask the priest if he's carrying holy things, all right? There are some things in the temple that are holy, we're not supposed to touch unholy things. And then he asked the priest, if you were carrying this holy thing and touched something unholy, does the unholy thing become clean now? The answer is no. Then he said, all right, if the priest had touched something dirty, like a dead body, right? The priest is not supposed, right? Then what happens when the priest has touched a dead body, is in contact with a dead body, then the priest, whatever else he touches, does it become unclean? And the priest said, yeah, it becomes unclean. Now what is all this got to do with building? Now I think the people were building the temple, which is a good thing, can we say that's the holy thing they were doing? But their lives were unclean. They were probably still punishing, oppressing their employees, cruel to the weak people around them. Maybe there were widows there, there were child labor they could exploit. And they exploited them doing something unclean. And then they went to build a temple, thinking that if I build a temple, I touch something clean. And though I live a sinful life, I'm okay. I'm okay. I've touched something clean. It makes what I do in my business okay. The priest said, no, it doesn't. All right? When the clean thing touches the unclean thing, the unclean thing is still unclean, 
And now the clean thing becomes unclean too. Wow, this is very complicated. In other words, now, you thought by touching the temple, building temple, your business, bad business practices, cheating, exploiting, will be blessed. Because you're touching clean things, you go home, you touch dirty things, the dirty things become clean. God said, no, it doesn't. Furthermore, when you build it, with unclean hands, you contaminate the building. All right? So, what is Haggai telling them? Haggai said, you're doing a good work, guys. But please don't think that by doing God's work, it will bless your dirty practices. He said, a lot of Christians still do that. They go to church. They give lots of money to the building fund. They give lots of money to charity. They build God's work. But in their business, they are so horrible, horrible. I know some people, I can, I mean, it's, if I mention their names, you will know them. They're well known. I know them. They are so religious. They'll call me, can you come and speak at this fellowship? Do this, do that. I say, yes, sure, I will. And they look so pious. And then when you talk to the employees, you will get a shock. How the words they use, the cruelty to their people, it's unbelievable. But they thought, since I do God's work, my business will be now blessed, clean, clean, clean. It's God's business now. And then with that money, profit made from dirty things, they want to bless God's work. And you know, as church administrators said, no need, thank you very much. We will do without that. All right. So here we see a very important principle that God is teaching us. Okay. He's not just concerned with us doing holy projects. He's more concerned with us having holy lives. Okay. So anyway, this is a, a lesson because it was kind of strange to them, you know, it, it, to them, if I touch things in the temple, woo, I'm okay, all right. So God goes on to see in, uh, where are we now? <clears throat> Let's look at verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you in all your products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. He's saying, since you laid the foundation and did all these things in the wrong way, putting yourself as priority, God's things as low priority. Number two, 
doing God's work, thinking if you do God's work, you can live a sinful life and sinful uh, uh, behavior wrong. Have you realized, he said, all your hard work, somehow when you work so hard for 50, you got 20. In other words, it always fell short. Something is missing in your life. Doesn't come up to your expectation. In other words, Christian, you're not satisfied with your life in every area because God has put a drought on it. But he said, from this day on, you get right and your life will be blessed. Then the last part is very interesting again. It totally switches course. Verse 20, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, the same day, another prophecy. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations, overthrow their chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now this is a total switch of gears, so to speak. He focuses now no more on the people. He focuses on Zerubbabel and says, you know what, Zerubbabel? One day, all the kings, you are just a small fry governor now, reporting to the big guys in Persia, and there are big kings in Egypt and big kings everywhere. One day, all of them will be gone. Finish. But you, you are like a signet ring. Look at the last verse. Make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. You know, when you put a ring on a girl's hand, you said, you are the one. The ring on a king shows his, he is the king. It's a, it's a symbol. And God said, you know what? Zerubbabel, you're a nobody now. Don't look down on yourself. Show you, one day, that kingdom you dreamed of, that king, you left Babylon to come back, dreaming of a kingdom, a future king, a future king that will rule in peace forever and ever. The seed of David, you are the representative in your line. So the story of Haggai ends with no ending, in a sense, because it's not a book. It's a chapter in the redemption story that one day in the book of Revelation, all these things will converge and the story will come. As they say, and they live happily ever after. That's a real story, not a fairy tale. So what have we learned from Haggai? Several things. Number one, God expects us to put him first. That sounds almost unfair. But in God's economics, that's the fairest deal of all. You put me first, I will bless your labor. I will bless your marriage. I'll bless your kids. I'll bless your home. 
I'll bless your health. I'll give you all you need. Put me first. Right? Now, Christians today need this lesson. It's not the old story of Haggai. It's the character of our God. He expects to be put first. When you read the Bible, seek Him first. Don't try to seek some verses for me. Alright? You know, many people read the Bible, just the focus is so wrong. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first God. People see how I feel about God. No, it's more important how does God feel about me. Everything is God. Begins. It has to be God-centric. What does God want? Now what can I get from God? Number two, learn this. God, the character of our God is, He's very concerned for His children. Our lives. I'm a father. I'm very concerned for the lives of my kids. Not, not how successful they're in their job. I want to see how their lives are. Are they good kids? Are they liars? Do they treat their wives badly? Do they bring up their kids well? That's very important to me, their lives. Not whether they, they, they give lots of money to the church. No. Their lives. Daily lives. Right? So I hope this little book, two chapters, helps get us get our priorities right. Put God first. And all these things shall be added unto you. Number two. Don't look at what I can do. Look at what I am daily. Not what I can do on Sunday for God. What I am daily, every day, before God. May God bless you. Right? This is an amazing little book that can change our lives. And please the God who loves us. God bless you.